Now with that, let's get into the word this morning. My name is Jesse. Let me introduce myself. I'm new here at VBC because I just had a sabbatical this summer, so I've been gone, and, uh, but I'm back. And I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I'm excited to bring the word uh, this morning. Now, let me kind of uh, situate where we are as a church as we work our way through God's word together. We've been in a series on Isaiah for quite some time. And then in the summer, we often do this. We do our summer Psalms. We, we get into the, the prayer book of the Bible, the worship book of the Bible, the Psalms. And uh, so we were in the Psalms this summer. But now we're in, look how cool that graphic is. The snow-capped mountains of, probably not around here. Life Together in Christ. We're doing a three-week series, Life Together in Christ. Before we get into the book of John, which we will be in for the entire next academic school year, starting September 12th, we're now in a three-week series on Life Together in Christ. Now, what you're going to get over the course of the next three weeks is a kind of biblical and theological survey of what makes the Christian community. Today, uh, we'll be, you know, a little bit all over, but we'll, our, our anchor kind of passage is going to be Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And this week, we're going to look at vision. What, what is the community of Christians? What, what does life together in Christ mean? Next week, it will get into the posture, you know, the, the way that we should be and, and, and our, our approach and attitudes to the community of of Christ. And then on the third week, we'll look at the practices. What do we do together? What do we need to do to have a healthy community? I wonder if you've heard of the Rosetto effect. You've, if you're like a Malcolm Gladwell reader, you probably have. Uh, he wrote a book called Outliers that starts with a, a long section about this, the Rosetto effect. Let me tell you about it. Dr. Stuart Wolf in 1950 investigated this small Pennsylvania town in the hills called Rosetta, Rosetto. And he, he investigated because he was, he was investigating uh, the increase in heart disease and the, the kind of unexpected dip in life expectancy that was happening in the 1950s. You know, why is it that we're, we're advancing medically and scientifically, but people are still dying of heart disease? And so he was invested in, somehow he learned of this little town in the hills of Pennsylvania where people weren't dying. I mean, eventually they would, but not till they were late in the you know, 90s. And so he set out to figure out what's going on there. Now, Rosetto is a little town in the hills where it's pretty much entirely Italian immigrants who immigrated from a place called Rosetto, Italy. And so Dr. Wolf thought, well, maybe these folks in this town, it's their diet. But is anyone here Italian? You know, you know, right? It's, it wasn't the diet. He thought maybe they're eating really fresh fruits and vegetables. No, 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 no. They were eating many breads. Much meat, meat and meat and meat and meat. They were drinking wine all day into the night, smoking cigarettes like one after the next after the next. Dessert, you know, dessert. You know, my, I, 
My mom's side of my family is Italian from a small hill town in Western Pennsylvania. And reading about this account, I was remember, re reminiscing about going to family reunions where it was like, how are these people alive? <laughs> I mean, it, you know, they're just shoving food and just, you know. All right, so it wasn't the food. Well, maybe he thought it was exercise. Maybe this is a community that's really dedicated to to exercise. But again, if you're from an Italian family in a small town in Pennsylvania, you know that's not the case. They weren't doing yoga on the town square. You know, they were just working hard. Uh, oh, and they, he thought maybe they have cushy jobs. Maybe they're just like, you know, a town full of people that have comfortable, cushy jobs. But no, they were like stonemasons and coal miners. And so all they did was work hard and then come home and eat and drink and smoke and talk to each other. Okay. So he's trying to figure out what's going on there and what he, what he finally he eliminated everything and finally concluded that the reason these people lived to be in their 90s against all odds was because of the community itself. One way to look at it is uh, the front porch was always full and the front door was always open. Multiple generations of families just settled down and the, the door was always open for meals and people were always in and out of the house. And the other thing that, that they found with this community is they would just, they, they couldn't afford TVs. So they would just get together and they'd sit and they'd tell the same stories over and over and over again, mixed in with new stories like what happened today or yesterday. And you get this outlier of a community that, that lived these long lives, not because of what we, all the things we would think it takes to live a long life. I better watch what I eat. I better exercise well. You know, I better not smoke, don't drink, do all. You got to live a clean life. And for them, it was like, no, no, no. We're going to do all the bad things, but we have life together. We're going to live in community. And lo and behold, they, uh, they, they lived long. They shared their gardens. They traded clothes. They... Uh, told stories. And really, it shouldn't surprise us. If you are someone who has been around the church or read your Bible, that shouldn't surprise you, right? It shouldn't be a surprise that life together contributes to a healthy life. That real flourishing, physical, spiritual, emotional flourishing, it, it happens in the context of community. We were made for life together. We were made for life together. This is, this, is, this is a fundamental reality of the human condition. You and I, we were made to live in life together. Psalm 133 puts it beautifully. It says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when the brethren dwell in unity, when the, when the family dwells in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. What's the blessing that Psalm 133 tells us that God has commanded for to be for his people dwelling in unity, life forevermore, because we were made for life together. In fact, the story of Christ, the story that we get in the scriptures of salvation for those of us who believe is not a story of salvation just unto, uh, unto a, a sort of solitary life or uh, it's not just salvation from death, from judgment, and into life. It's just me and God floating in the clouds. We're good. Me and God are good. No, that's not the picture in the scriptures at all. Right? We're saved from this, but we're saved for life together. We're saved for community. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing. Life forevermore. See, I want you to see we were made 
for life together. We're made for this. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, uh, sketches a picture. It's, it's, um, it's fictional, so it's just, it's just a picture that he, he sketches of what it's like in heaven. You know, as an outsider coming into heaven and kind of observing it, he, he, he describes uh, being this sort of um, uh, wispy being that's barely there. And the, the grass itself is so real and solid that he can hardly step on it because it just, it hurts. And what happens as these people move further and further up and in into this, into this place, they're coming together with one another. And as they come together and come closer to Christ, uh, they become more solid, more real, more of who they were truly meant to be. This is the way it is for us, friends. We were made for life together. We were made for life together. So we're going to do a, a little kind of brief survey of the scriptures and look at how we were made for life together, beginning with the end of our story. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to, I'm going to read from Revelation 21, 1 through 5, a few verses in there, and then surrounding. Behold, Revelation 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. He goes on to say, I am making all things new. Well, then what? Is it just me and God floating around? No, then there'll be springs with the water of life flowing for God's people to drink from freely a beautiful city, which is illuminated by the lamb himself, by Christ himself with us, illuminated by the, by the presence and the glory of Jesus and the nations will come streaming in and out. The, the great multitude of ethnicities of people coming in and out from every age and every tribe and every tongue and the nations will be healed by the leaves of the tree of life, that tree we lost at the beginning of our story will now heal the nations, the people coming together and will sing and will worry. Isn't it good to sing together? We'll sing together. We'll worship together. We'll create together. We'll cultivate together. We were made for life together. Our joy and our happiness increases when, when the brethren live in unity, when the people, when we are in life together with one another, it increases our joy. I, I just experienced this yesterday. I got invited by a couple of friends of mine who are like outdoorsmen kind of people. I grew up in more of like an indoorsman kind of situation. And um, I, so I had a couple of uh, friends invite me to go kayaking on the New River out in Giles County. Okay. So I was pretty sure that I was, I was like, well, I better find a substitute preacher because I'm going to die. I mean, the rapids were like this, but I was, might as well have been like a cliff. Uh, I didn't die, and I, I, um, I did pretty well out there. But I'll tell you, as we're out there kayaking on the New River, and it's just amazing. It's beautiful. It's like not quite snow-capped mountains, but it's, we got our own mountains, and they're beautiful all around us. We hit the water one minute into this kayak, and what flies out of the trees about 100 feet above us and just goes alongside of us for like, I don't know, 20 seconds this big majestic bald eagle and and like can you imagine if the three of us saw it and we didn't say anything our joy would be small but we were like look at that go america 
fly for freedom. And our joy increased because, because we're made for life together, right? Because even the beauties of eternity are, are going to increase our joy as we experience them together. When he makes all things new, he restores our community. He brings us back together, right? So as we kind of serve, that's the end of the story. If we work our way back to the beginning of the story in Genesis 1 and 2, you don't have to turn there again. Just follow with me. He said, God says, God says over and over again, it is good. There's this refrain, it is good. It is good. He saw all that he made, it is good. Saw all that he made, it is good. But there's one time when he doesn't say that, right? Genesis 2 kind of zooms into the picture on the sixth day when he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Get this, the perfect paradise. There's no sin. There's no, there's nothing. It's good. But there's one thing that's not good. It's that man is alone, right? I mean, Adam was cool with God. You know, dude's chilling with God. Like, I don't know what he's doing. Gardening or hanging out just, and God's like, yeah, but I got something better for you. Better for this, better than just you and me chilling for eternity. I got something better for you because you're made for life together, right? The, then, then this weird thing happens after God says that before he creates Eve, he brings all the animals to Adam so Adam can name them. And I want to tell you what's happening when he's bringing the animals to Adam. They're not coming one by one because that's not how the animals were created, right? You, you can't make more animals with just one. It's two by two, right? These animals are coming before Adam two by two. And Adam, you think about, think about all the animals, right? He's like, there's, there's a couple of giraffes. I think they're going to get along great. There's a couple of zebras. They're probably going to be able to do things together. And, all, and then it goes all the way to the end. And then we get this commentary at the end. But for the man, there was not found a helper or a partner fitted for him. Right, so now you have this picture of like a sinless kind of loneliness where Adam is now really, I think, feeling his lack. It's not good for man to be alone. So God makes Eve from Adam and for Adam and all is finally and fully good, at least for a little while. Now we see here the beginnings of the family made in the image of God, but this is also evidence that we were made for a life together. We're made for life together. But here's the thing, you can go even further back in time than the beginning, right? You can go to a time before there was time. It's like a Christopher Nolan movie. Eventually you get outside of before time and there, there, there's one before time and it's God himself, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity past in community. God didn't become a trinity when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He didn't become a community uh, when uh, he created humanity. In fact, God has been what one theologian calls a holy and happy society forever that way behind us. Forever. We were made for life together because we were made in the image of God. And God is a, is a three in one, a trinity, three persons, one God in community together. When God says, let me make man in my image, he doesn't, does he? He says, let us make man in our image, Genesis 1:26. And the image, so God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. 
male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God. We're made for life together. But we live on this side of Eden. We live on this side of the fall. Things fall apart. In that same book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis describes hell. And as he describes what's happening in hell, uh, people are being splintering further and further and further apart. And they get to sort of build their own sort of house and their own kingdom, but it gets further and further apart from anyone else. And as they do, they're almost disintegrating. Uh, they're, they're, they're becoming less and less human as they're further and further apart. They become more individualistic and separate and less and less of who God made them to be. And it's the same for us, right? So we've seen that God has made us for life together and he's made us in his own image for life together. And yet we live in this world where, where life is divided. Life is divided. You know, I think we live in a particularly depressing age. Right? We, don't, we don't have many Rosettos anymore. We live in an age that uh, some modern philosopher, a guy named Robert Bella, a sociologist, describes as an age of ex expressive individualism. Right? We're free agents. We're the masters of our own domain. What matters is that we are true to our authentic selves and we get a chance to express it. And as long as we're giving each other tolerance to express who we are individually, we're going to be okay. We, 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 uh, we reject the claims and the commitments of, of um, it, uh, institutions and religious commitments. And, we, and we, we try to become more and more and more free. We want to be free agents and the actors and the theaters of our own lives. And we think that we're most free when we throw off these constraints. But what has this expressive individualistic age wrought? What has it brought about? I, I, you know, it's brought about an uh, epidemic of loneliness, of mental health problems, of anxiety and depression, of suicide that's unlike any other. Right, here we are at the apex of affluence. We've got so much money. We got the apex of scientific advancement, the apex of, of uh, comfort, and it's, it's, we've, we're also at the apex of loneliness and depression, anxiety. Is this flourishing? Is this really life together, what we see around? We, here's the thing. We're more connected than ever, but we're also more alone than ever. Consider social media. When I start talking about social media, my friends say that I'm like a grumpy old man telling kids to get off my lawn. So just permit me, you know, to be that grumpy old man for a minute. When you consider social media, get off my lawn. Social media has existed for less than 20 years. Okay. How many of you are less than 20 years old? Go ahead. Throw your hands up. Some of you. Yeah, it's okay. You can be proud of that. I mean, you're young. Your whole life, social media has been a reality. But how many of you remember a time? Now, in the first service, I almost said, how many of you are old? But I caught myself, yeah. How many of you really strongly remember a time before social media? You know, this isn't old. This is a new thing. And yet this new thing has completely changed, not just Virginia or America, but the world is completely transformed by technology that's less than 20 years old, right? Facebook and MySpace came onto the scene, MySpace. That was a thing. Came onto the scene promising, offering tools to help users connect with friends and family. 
Facebook's early mission was to make the world more open and connected. We've come a long way from that. Uh, you know, along the way, we got like and share buttons that transformed social media from a place of connection into a place of performance and platforming. We've got, uh, you know, we got the retweet button on Twitter. So it used to be that when you were on Twitter and you were like, I think I want people to see this, you had to think about it for a minute, long enough to copy and paste and publish. But now, then you got the retweet button. You didn't have to think about it anymore. Just boop. The guy, that, the guy that created that, Chris Weatherall, one of the engineers, regrets it now. He just said that we might have just handed a four-year-old a loaded weapon. It's a kind of a sad picture of you on Twitter, but, but maybe not that far off, right? Our age has transformed. Our, and listen, I'm saying it's not just that social media has transformed our age. Our age took this tool and we've morphed it and transformed it from the dream of connecting into a nightmare of outrage and tribalism, right? I, I, I think Facebook is like the new Roman Colosseum and, and we're all gladiators going to battle for the world to watch with all the spectators gathering around. I was hanging out with one of the friends I was hanging out with yesterday on the, on the yak. That's what you say, I think. <laughs> on the yak. Was talking about visiting his grandmother in Montana and, and how sad her life is because she's alone, isolated. Uh, she is uh, spends her day watching reruns of game shows and kind of doom scrolling Facebook. And that's not just his grandma, right? I mean, this is this is uh, the end game of our age. This is what expressive individualism looks like as it's sort of reaching its height, right? And if that isn't bad enough. Have you heard about COVID? Too soon to laugh about it. We're still in the middle of it, right? I mean, it's in addition to the toll of lives and physical well-being that this virus has taken from us, there's the toll of loneliness. Harvard recently has they have this project called uh, Making Caring Common. Making Caring Common. In other words, we should care more. They have this Making Caring Common project where they released a report this year that 30% of all Americans, including 61% of young adults, 51% of mothers with young children feel, feel serious loneliness. 43% of young adults reported increases in loneliness since the outbreak of the pandemic. Nearly half of everyone that responded reported that no one in the past few weeks had taken more than just a few minutes to reach out and ask how they're doing in a way that made them feel uh, like the person cared. Of course, this isn't a new problem. It's not like uh, Eden was just lost at Facebook or COVID, right? We were created for life together, but our reality is much more like life divided often, isn't it? So we've life, to get, life together, we were made for this. We know it, we sense it. You know, we draw together like, like bugs around a light, right? We're drawn to life together, but then life is divided and, and separated and just destroyed. And that's the reality of the, the kind of chaos of the world we live in. Now, I want to read some of Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 now, beginning in verse 11. Because this, this letter is written into the chaos. This is before Facebook and before COVID. And yet 2,000 years ago in Ephesus, uh, there was still strife, division, fragmentation, Ephesians 2:11 Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called 
the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We're going to read the rest of that in a minute. I want you to stop there and look at this. this what, what's being described here by Paul in Ephesians 2 is what is... We see this division, Gentile versus Jew. A Gentile would be anyone that's not a Jew. And they're called, I mean, there's like, there's this kind of ethnic derisive language being used called the uncircumcision. Now, I'm not going to do any kind of, don't worry, you don't have to cover the kids' ears. I'm not going to describe what circumcision is, except for to say that to call someone the uncircumcision is to take aim at the very center of who they are, right? This is like a, you people are disgusting kind of thing. And here you've got this, this thing introduced here, this sort of division, this, this uh, life divided between Gentile and Jew. And what's more, you see that this division meant that they were separated from Christ, alienated from the, from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise with no hope and no God in the world. There was hostility between not just us and God, but neighbor and neighbor. And Christ, see, here's the thing about Ephesians 2. Christ came in our place to make things right between us and God. Verses 1 through 10 spell this out. That It tells us that once we were children of wrath, meaning children destined for wrath, that were enemies of God. We had set ourselves against God, saying, no, my way, not your way. And that is absolutely universal. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. All of us, by nature, that's what Ephesians 2 is telling us, we're set against God. But God did didn't leave us to our own devices to try to sort it out because guess what? Can we sort it out? No, we can't sort it out. We can't even sort out like small stuff, right? We can't make ourselves come to life when we're dead. See, see, Christ didn't, you know, bring, uh, he didn't um, take bad people and make them good. He took dead people and made them alive. This is this is Ephesians 2, 4, right? You, you were dead in your trespasses, but you've been made alive together with Christ. Why? Because God is rich in mercy. Because for God to let us just wander along, always splintering and fragmenting off by ourselves, further and further and further away from him, it was not an option. God sent his son Jesus to come for us, to rescue us, 
And it wasn't just the death of Jesus that did it. It was the life of Jesus in our place, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law so that you and I, when we sit and we feel it and we know I, I'm, not, I'm not as good as I want to be. I keep doing the things I don't want to do. I, why did I do that last night? Why did I do that a minute ago? Why, am I the, why does this keep stirring up inside of me? Why can't I get better? The answer to that is Jesus has done it for you. Receive him, receive his life, receive his righteousness. This is the good news of the gospel, that Christ has lived the righteous life that we could never live, fulfilling the, the law in our place. Then he went, now the, the good news doesn't stop there, right? Like he's just not our way to go, Jesus. No, he went to the cross in our place. He died in our place. He's risen in our place. And we can receive our righteousness. We can receive our relationship with God being repaired by trusting, by believing in Christ. But Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 tells us, hey, actually the, the news is much worse than you thought. It's not just that your, your relationship with God is busted and broken. It's that your relationship with one another is also busted and broken and there's hostility between us. But Christ has come not just to make you right with God, but to bring us together and build us together into one new person in Christ. You see, we were made for life together, but that life together is divided and broken. But Christ has made a way. Jesus has made a way. We haven't been saved. You know, when you read Ephesians 2, a lot of times, especially that first half, you think about it in terms of me and I. Me and God are good now. But that's actually not what Ephesians 2 is telling us. We are good with God and we're good with each other in Christ and only in Christ. Life divided has been put back together in Christ. That old hostility between man and man, man and woman, Jew and Greek, white and black, neighbor and neighbor has been done away with and destroyed in the destroyed body of our Savior. He's done away with it. He's made a way to bring us together, to, to unite us, but that uniting is in Him. That same Harvard report makes a surprising recommendation. Surprising to me, anyways, I read it. That report says this, we need to return to an idea that was central to our founding and is at the heart of many great religious traditions. We have commitments to ourselves, but we also have vital commitments to each other, including to those who are vulnerable. This Harvard report is saying, hey, we actually need to probably get back to what we were founded on and what we see in our great religious traditions, that we cannot be free. We got to stop being free of all these commitments to one another. We need to commit to one another, including to those vulnerable. This is what Harvard is saying. Uh, there's a song that came out this past year called Empire Builder by um, Typhoon. The songwriter Kyle Morton uh, build, builds up to a crescendo of yelling at, towards the end of the song where he's yelling these words, everybody's angry, everybody's lonely. Maybe love is not enough but let's not rule out the possibility. Now, here's the thing. Harvard and, and Typhoon, they're, they're right to a certain degree, right? Let's not rule out the possibility. Let's not give up. Let's try, you know, there's an idea that can bring us back together again. But the thing is, is that we were made for life together and there's only one center. There's only one person that can actually hold us together. Not ruling out that love might be enough. That's not going to do it. 
you know, striving harder to love one another, it's not ultimately going to do it. Holding strong to our commitments to one another is part of it, but me holding strong to my commitments is not going to keep the community together, right? No matter how strong Brett is, we can't have a Brett-centered church because that center cannot hold, right? We're made for life together, and the only community with a center that holds now and for eternity is life together in Christ. Think back to that Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when the brethren dwell in unity. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forever, forevermore. That is in the person and work of Jesus, our King, who unites us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book titled Life Together says that Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Are you in Christ? Then you're my brother, you're my sister. We belong to one another in Christ. This is the primary center. This is the primary allegiance. Whether or not you, what kind of baptism you do or you know, whether or not you have a guitar, this, these sorts of things don't matter compared to being in Christ. Christ is the center that holds us together. Let's close our time reading from verses 19 through 22. You see that we're, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see here in these verses, we're described in three different ways. In Christ, we are citizens, right? Verse 19, You're, we're no longer strangers and aliens. We're no longer on the outside of the kingdom of God, but we are brought in to citizenship so that the church, each church that, whether it's an American church or an Afghani church, each church is an outpost of the kingdom of God united in Christ. See, we are citizens. We are citizens that are, are called together to then be for the world around us, representing the kingdom of God. We belong to one another in a way that transcends our national allegiances because we are citizens of the kingdom. What's more, we're part of the household of God. What that means is we're part of the, the family. We're brought near. So, is your family of origin like a really good, strong family? Then you get a you got a little foretaste. You got a little movie trailer of what the family of God will be like. But maybe your family of origin was busted and divided and hostile. Christ is offering you his family. This is a family that, well, might be a little busted here on earth, but you have a promise that one day. What is already happening here, the union that Christ brings together, is only a foretaste of the family of God for all of eternity. You have a place in Christ in that family and finally temple worship. We gather, you know, it's good to come together and sing. It's good to come together and worship. In fact, all of our lives are, are really meant to be lived worshiping Christ as king. And we get to do that together. We, be, we are being built into the temple. It's not, the church isn't, what we're inside of right now, right? 
It's not that uh, the church is the steeple and we're the people. That's not what it is, right? It's actually the church is the people. The steeple is just a steeple. We are, the, we are the church. We are the community. Those of us who are in Christ, who trust Christ, we are formed into the people of God, into the church of God. There's a story that I'll close with. After World War II, a community on the outskirts of a big city in Poland was created by the communist government there to be a living monument to a kind of communist utopianism designed to embody all the lofty ideals of the atheistic community, massive factories, uh, towering apartment complexes, drawing working class people in. And so you have all these people coming in from the countryside to work in the steel working. And, uh, they, they, and then in the central public square where, you know, if you, if you are in an old small town in America, what do you find in the middle of the town? The church. Well, here they, they have a bronze sculpture, bronze statue of linen to hold the community together. There is no room for a church in this community. They assumed that the residents over a short amount of time would leave behind their superstitions and just kind of get on board with the communist atheistic agenda. But the steel workers, they wanted a church. They were stubborn. They didn't want just a statue of linen in the town square. They wanted a place to worship together. And so there was this young Polish bishop whose name was Karol Wojtyla, later would become Pope John Paul II who uh, decided that he'd apply for permits to build a church, you know, like, hey, we're going to go through all the right paperwork. We need to build a building so that the church can meet. And, and time after time after time, the government denied their request. So in the absence of a building, he and his church leaders went out to the town square and nailed two rough beams together, planted it in the ground, and called for people to come. And the steel workers and their families all came on Sunday morning to gather around the cross and worship. Now, the communist, uh, the, the, the leaders of that city didn't like this, so they came out with water hoses and cannon, water cannons and, and dispersed the crowds and took the cross and broke it down. And only for the next Sunday morning, a new cross to be stuck in the ground in its place and the people to come together to worship. They braved freezing rain, snow, unbearable heat to hear the word preached, to gather together and worship in Christ. Finally, 20 years later, the uh, government was like, oh, fine, build a building. And they got their building. But it wasn't the building, was it? It wasn't the building that made the church. And it wasn't uh, having shared commitments and to, to a kind of political group or shared commitments to a style or a type of music or a sports team. It was the cross that brought them together. It was Christ alone that brings the community together. We're together. We're made for life together. And that life together is possible in Christ. Christ is the center. Christ binds us together with a new citizenship, forms us into, I mean, look around. Really do it. Look around. This is an unlikely family, isn't it? Christ has done this. Christ is doing this. We belong not only to him, but also to one another. And this has profound and powerful implications for our posture towards one another. Like, will I continue to gossip and slander when this is my brother and my sister in Christ? One for whom Christ has died and given his body and blood for? Will, will I tear down or will I build up? Will I complain about the kind of things that Christians in China and Afghanistan would just give their life for? 
But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week where we're going to talk about posture of the community. Let's be satisfied this morning to come together around the cross. Let's be satisfied this morning to look around and say, hey, let's worship Jesus together. Let's be satisfied this morning that if you have not yet trusted Christ and something is happening in you this morning, that you might come and talk to me or talk to some of the person that brought you this morning. Say, hey, I want to I know more about what it is to be right with God through faith in Jesus. I want to know more about this community that Christ is building in him. Let's sing with hope that our sinner can hold because our sinner is God himself. Let's marvel and wonder about this this kingdom that, that citizenship transcends our nations and our times, our ages. That we're part of this temple that he's still building and will continue to build for worship together. This family means that we, you know, as we transition into our communion time and even a, a time of lament through worship, you know, the reason we do that is because when we look at what's happening in Afghanistan, or what's happening in Haiti with earthquakes and assassinations and political turmoil, we, it, we, we mourn. Not because those are those people over there, but those are brothers and sisters. They're fellow citizens. We belong to one another. It's also why we celebrate baptisms in Blacksburg at other churches and baptisms in Beirut and, and, and because we are bound together in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Let's, let's do that this morning, church. Let's suffer together for those who are suffering and let's rejoice together with hope uh, that we will sing in the house of Zion. Not just with the people in this, but with the people in this room, but also people in Afghanistan and Haiti and people that, who were sawn in two, as the book of Hebrews tells us, 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for not leaving us alone. We were once without hope and without you in the world, but you were rich in mercy and you pursued us and you brought us near and you made us alive and you've given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and you've You've given us our justification, our rightness with you so that we wouldn't have to keep trying and trying and trying and trying. It's finished. We thank you that we can sing this morning. Uh, we can lament with hope. We can celebrate with hope. Because you will certainly accomplish what you've set out to accomplish. You will continue to build this temple up. We praise you this morning. Amen. Each week we gather together and celebrate communion. This is a picture of our unity. This is um, for believers, and it's a reminder that Christ came and died because we need a mediator between man and God. We live in a sin-sick world. All we have to do is watch the news, and we see the desperation of parents throwing their children over the walls to save them, and some of them not making it. 
And we need to be reminded to lament. Lament our own sin. Lament the sin of, of our nation. Lament the, lament the sin of the world. The reason that Christ came was because of that. But it's also a picture of hope. Jesus said, I won't drink this again until I do it with you together in my Father's kingdom. And we know one day Jesus is coming back and we will celebrate this marriage feast of the Lamb. We will together drink wine and eat rich foods. But we know that Jesus said that wouldn't happen until he comes again. In the meantime, we need to be about lamenting and repenting. Not just our own sin, but the fact that we've not raised our voices to proclaim Jesus, to tell our leaders that there are brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are suffering because of some of our policies. And so we need to pray that God would solve problems, that he would open doors, that he would soften hearts, and that we would be committed to praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering unimaginable things that we in this country haven't had to suffer. But we can still rejoice because Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And I'm rejoicing that one day we won't be using these little wafers. But if you'll take that top flap off, which is a little tricky to do sometimes with one hand. All right. Hold on. This represents Jesus' body broken for us. Take and eat together. And likewise, after dinner, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you for the remission of sins. Drink it. Father, thank you that you give us a remembrance. We are forgetful people, and we need a reminder that you sent your only son to come and to die, to pay the price that I couldn't pay, that none of us could, and to unite us together in a holy family as we stand arm in arm with believers, not just around the world, but throughout the ages. And Father, may we, as a people, give you thanks and rejoice, and may we continue to lament and repent. For Jesus' sake, amen.